So, um, God and sex. You don't have to be a professor of sociology to realise that when it comes to the big issues of our times, sex is one of the hottest topics there is. I went to the local newsagents uh, just yesterday with my four-year-old boy and my two-year-old girl and got some of the best magazines you can get. One's called Cosmopolitan. Uh, it sells over three million uh, copies, over three million every month. And uh, fascinating to see that the March, uh, the February edition, 50 sex tips to take you over the edge. I didn't think they were that great, but uh, there you go. <laughs> Confessions of, uh, I'm going to write the next, I'm going to write to the editor. Confessions of a male porn addict. Interesting phrase underneath. I had to learn to find my girlfriend sexy. Uh, and then there's this big article on this other lady, and you've got these 50 sex uh, tips. So this magazine, at least 50% of it, is all built. It sells 3 million copies because it talks to women, particularly about sex. Then I picked up a boys one. I didn't realise there was soft porn in this one because I'm not into magazines, but I picked up Nuts. And uh, I honestly didn't know there was soft porn in Nuts, right? So um, I was a bit shocked. There'll be a confession later, don't worry. Um, so, uh, I mean, this, this literally is... 95% about sex and 5% about women having sex on cars, that's what I can see. Uh, that, that is it, really. And um, that's it. Helen Flanagan, I like being sexy. And then uh, Frank Skinner has a jokes page in there that's all about boobs and all sorts. And it's, you know, high quality stuff. I mean, y- y- our culture is, is crazy about sex, and uh, uh, you know, the fact that that magazine sells over 3 million copies every month, and Nut sells more, including the online readership, it, t- it makes us realise that sex sells. I mean, you can use sex to advertise anything. Beer, football, sofas, perfume, jewellery, and as I said, cars. People seem to uh, use sex to, or at least women acting in seductive ways. We live in a sex-obsessed culture. Apparently, men think about sex every seven seconds. I have no idea how they glean those statistics. Not true for me. Um, um, but sex is important to us, so we will tell lies to get it. In a Durex survey, uh, 34% of men and 10% of women have told lies in order to have sex. 68% of men and 59% of women have been involved with more than one uh, person than their current partner uh, doesn't know about. I just want to check I am recording. I am. Uh, 47% of, women, of men and 42% of men would understate the number of their previous partners in order to convince someone to have sex. And 48% of women admitting to faking an orgasm. And I'm sure you can all remember the time uh, when you grew up when there was huge pressure on you to lie and to flaunt about how far you'd gone and what you'd done with which girl or which boy. As if to say what you did in your bedroom to find who you were. And people would say all kinds of rubbish to be accepted. I was a sports person growing up. People would say all kinds of rubbish in the sports bus to be accepted uh, because of their sexual prowess, or so to speak. So the topic before us today is a hugely relevant topic because we clearly live in a sex-obsessed culture. So why is sex so sexy? Why is it so good? Why does it sell? Why does it grab our attention? Why did my blog post have hundreds of visits this week? I couldn't believe it. At its best, sex has two principal ingredients, which make it so attractive and virtually irresistible. Even at worst, 
Sex promises these two virtues in their counterfeit form. The first is ecstasy. Ecstasy is an overwhelming feeling of pleasure. Sex is pleasurable. At least it should be. It's an intense form of pleasure, a sudden hit or rush. Some research indicates that the endorphin high is similar to a heroin hit, which I've experienced in hospital and was seriously cool. (laughs) For some people, that's what they want, and we shouldn't demean or despise that. Pleasure is a good thing, and sex has the capacity to deliver pleasure like little else. But secondly, sex is powerful because it offers intimacy and vulnerability. I mean, sex is intimate. Two bodies made for each other by their very design entwined in the closest possible union. No other act brings two people closer than sex. Life has a tendency to expose differences and alienate us from one another. And we often put up masks and cover up. In sex, those differences, at least for a moment, are irrelevant. And our physical coverings, at least, come down. And we experience the joy of intimacy and closeness and vulnerability. It was said of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden that they were naked and unashamed. They had nothing to hide, nothing to fear, nothing to pretend about. I think deep down we all want that kind of intimacy and vulnerability. So sex is powerful because it can offer so much. So it's not surprising that we live in a sex-obsessed culture to experience the greatest rush, to know the greatest intimacy? Who doesn't want that? We all do. Of course we do. Now, I imagine you're saying at this point, okay, Steve, I can accept that it's a relevant topic. Yeah, we live in a culture that seems to be pretty preoccupied with the topic. But what has God got to do with sex? And what's God got to do with good sex? So if it's a relevant topic to start with, maybe you're thinking, this is a surprising topic. I mean, what does God know? If you, if you read those magazines, I wouldn't recommend it, but if you did read those magazines, the last person they're going to go for the top 50 tips is God and find out his opinion. God's not going to crop up in the conversation as if he has anything to say about sex. And if he did pop up in a conversation and said something, people would probably think he'd say, stop having sex and stop having fun because God's a killjoy. Now, that was my view of God growing up. It was a bit like Mimi's view. The God of Christianity was a God who wanted to stop me having fun, who wanted to ruin my pleasure. Christianity was something my parents did that I resented. It got in the way of the things I really wanted to do in life. And then when I became a teenager and girls and sex and my sexual desires were all starting to kick off and everything, if you'd said God had anything positive to say about sex, I probably would have laughed at you. God was nothing more than a spare tyre in a car. You never think about him care about him, talk to him, but when there's an accident, you really hope he's there. <laughs> and then you come to him. Only when, it's, only when there's a problem in life, but otherwise you just ignore him. You don't even know he's there. That's my view of God. He was a, Christianity was a party stopper. God was a killjoy. And I think a lot of people in our culture today, often for good reasons, but often for not good reasons, have a similar view of God. No more so than in the area of sex. Christianity, most people think, is about keeping my pants on. God's a prude who wants to ruin my life and stop me having fun. He doesn't know the first thing about sex, so why would I talk to him about it? But then I started to read my Bible, and I read verses like this from the Song of Songs. Let, 
Him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is more delightful than wine. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. It doesn't leave much to the imagination. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. This is from the Song of Songs. It's over 3,000 years old. It's the first ever sex manual in history. It's a series of songs between two lovers celebrating and delighting in each other, their feelings about each other, and their enjoyment and intimacy with each other. It's very frank without being crass. It talks about kissing and petting and oral sex and different types of sex. It gives different ways to spice up your sex life, like a strip tease. If you don't believe me, have a read of the Song of Songs tonight and you'll find it. It even talks about sex outdoors, which is a great feat for any of us to achieve. Come, my lover, let us go to the countryside. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us go early to the vineyards to see if the vines have budded, if their blossoms have opened, and if the pomegranates are in bloom. There... I will give you my love. The mandrakes send out their fragrance, and at our door is every delicacy, both new and old, that I have stored up for you, my lover. Now, obviously, it was written 3,000 years ago in a Hebrew language that is no longer commonly spoken. So the expressions can be obscure, but the meaning is clear. And these two lovers delight in each other's bodies. How beautiful your sandaled feet, O prince's daughter. Your graceful legs are like jewels, the work of a, of a craftsman's hands. Your navel is a rounded goblet that never lacks blended wine. Your waist is a mound of wheat encircled by lilies. The king is held captive. How beautiful you are and how pleasing. O love with your delights. Your stature is like that of a palm. This is brilliant. And your breasts like clusters of fruits. I said I will climb the palm tree and I'll take hold of its fruit. May your breasts be like the clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. As a teenager, I just could not believe this was in the word of God. And God started to become more interesting to me. All this language about breasts and fountains, and water, and fruit juices, or juices of types, to talk about sex. I mean, it just, it baffled me. And yet it shouldn't have baffled me. You see, for all the talk about God being a killjoy, you know, God's a God where we're supposed to obey the rules, and if we don't obey the rules, then we're in trouble. I mean, what is the first rule he gives to mankind? Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. God's first command to humanity is to go and have sex. Have you ever thought about it? Hardly the image of a killjoy God. So maybe much to our surprise, God does actually have a lot to say about sex. But here's something else that's interesting that we should note. If, if God made absolutely everything, he made you and me, he made the birds and the bees, he made the whole galaxy and the farthest star, he made absolutely everything as it says in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If God is the author of everything around us, then he's also the author of sex, and he was the one that designed it to be pleasurable and intimate. It was all his idea because he made it. It wasn't as if God finished making Adam and Eve, went off to have a cup of coffee and came back and said, Adam, what are you doing? Get off her. It wasn't like that. All right? He was the one that intended them to go and make love. 
He made our bodies. He gave us sexual organs to complement one another. And it says repeatedly in Genesis, and it was good. Do you think God wants to now taunt us and say, now I won't let you enjoy sex and I'm going to tell you what not to do all the time? Do you think that's really what his heart for us is on this topic? But here's where it gets really interesting. If what I've said is true so far, I'm sure there's lots of points of debate. But there's one, if, if it is true, there's one important factor to bear in mind. If God is the author of sex, and God designed it to be pleasurable and intimate, whatever else we say about sex, we must realize that the maker knows more about it than us. Because he designed it. We're not the clever ones to have worked it all out. I'm sure he knows a few things about it that we don't. That would make our knees shake at the thought of. Who knows best how to use a computer? The manufacturer. That's why they give us a manual. Left to our own devices, we wouldn't be able to get the full benefit. At best, we might get 60 to 80% of its capabilities. And at worst... As many men find out when trying to figure out something without reading the manual, we make a complete hash of it. And in fact, this can be seen all around us, because for all our obsession about sex, for all our talk, for all the hype and the glamour, for all the marketing and attention, we do all know that there's a darker side to sex. We may live in a sex-obsessed culture, but as with many obsessions, it seems that our culture has got a bit out of control. With sexual abuse and paedophilia on the rise, who can say we've got it all cracked? Did you know that for every, normal con- page con- uh, every page of normal content in Google, there's five of pornographic pages? Did you know that the, the most frequently typed word into Google is pornography, and the second most frequently typed word is a misspelling of pornography? Every week, there is a new scandal in the papers about sex or the abuse of sex. Sadly, the religious institutions in this country seem to be hitting the headlines more than most. And with the work that I do uh, at the church I'm at now and at the church I was at previously, I would talk to a lot of people who would have great hurt and dissatisfaction and pain and loneliness because of sex and the abuse of sex. And past sexual experiences often haunt people and paralyze them years later. For all our talk about sex, I'm not sure our culture really understands it very well. There's an interesting article. There's an interesting article in the Times recently. Some years ago, the author had been tried on a rape charge brought by his then-girlfriend. He admits they did have sex, but it was consensual rather than forced. He was acquitted by the unanimous opinion of the jury. But he feels a lingering sense of responsibility for what went wrong. As he reflects on what happened to them, he concluded that I've come to think that we were partly to blame as a couple because of the druggy foolishness of our lifestyle, the reckless abandonment of morality, the kinky games we played. When Alicia and I got into dubious antics, we were asking for trouble because we deliberately blurred the boundaries. But listen to this. He says this, The lessons I've learned from my experience and subsequent research is that as a society, we may well treat sex too lightly. Put it another way, we see sex as an amusing sport, a titillating pastime, a kind of fancy dress party of the libido. The more, the merrier, the weirder, the better. It's good that people feel less inhibited about sex. But sex isn't just about orgasms. It ain't just about fun. 
for all their faults, our forefathers knew something about sex that we seem to have forgotten. Sex is not a computer game. It's not a party trick. It's not tennis with bells on. When we take sex too far, then sex can destroy our lives. Now, that's a rare and humbling opinion from someone that's caught up in our culture and our sex-obsessed world. But we all know what he's talking about. And so this is therefore a vital vital topic because our culture is hurting because of its obsession with sex. Sex, like anything that's powerful, can be used for good or can be used to harm. In fact, right at the end of the Song of Songs, this series of love songs between two lovers, the conclusion really of the whole matter is this. Love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers cannot wash it away. The authors conclude, these two lovers conclude, sexual love is so powerful, it's comparable to the power of death and fire, and its effects cannot be quickly put out or forgotten. In fact, like death, we can seem helpless against its power. And we all know stories maybe personal to ourselves, maybe of friends, where sex has caused not great pleasure, but great pain. Where it's not brought great intimacy, but great separation and heartache. So maybe we do need to stop and take a look at what the creator and author of sex intended when he created us. Maybe we need to sit a bit more humbly and listen to what he thinks. You see, there's a constant refrain throughout the Song of Songs, which we need to listen to today, as the lovers excite each other at the wonder and the gift of uh, sex and relationships. The author repeatedly says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. What he's saying is there is a correct context for sex, and if you mess with it, there are devastating consequences. It's as if the writer keeps wanting to draw our attention to the fact that this love, this intimacy expressed in sex, this ecstasy being experienced, is so good, it is so beautiful, it is so perfect, it is so precious, it is so powerful, we just cannot mess it up. It's too good to get wrong. Too much is at stake if we do get it wrong. People can get hurt if we don't do this right. There's a time to wait. There's a place for restraint. Unbridled sex does not necessarily bring the greatest pleasure. And that is why a father in the book of Proverbs counsels in the Bible, counsels his young son. And he says this, drink water from your own well. Share your love only with your wife. Why spill the water of your springs in the streets, having sex with just anyone? You should reserve it for yourselves. Never share it with strangers. Let your wife be a fountain of blessing. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. She is a loving deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you always. May you always be captivated by her love. Again, these are not the words of a killjoy. These aren't the words of a God that has a negative view of sex. But they are a father who counsels his son with hindsight and experience and says... Don't mess it up. Don't lead into a life of, of uh, sexual immorality and, uh, and adultery. You see, sex in the Bible is always seen as whole life commitment. The means by which one woman and uh, one man sustain, develop and enjoy their lifelong, exclusive and intimate relationship. 
The reason God has given sex its appropriate context and its appropriate boundaries is that if you ignore them, then the consequences are devastating. But here's the final thing I want to share tonight. And this is a key question that often gets missed. God also, I mean, he made it, right? He's the inventor, he's the designer, he's the author. And he knows why he gave humanity the gift of sex. And this is nearly always forgotten in the debates today. Why did God give us sex as this wonderful gift? Why did God create sex? Why did he want it to be so pleasurable? Why did he want it to be so intimate? Why is making love to someone arguably the greatest joy or the greatest comfort that many will ever know? Because God wanted to give us something that would point to the ultimate pleasure and the ultimate intimacy we were all created for. You see, sex is a signpost pointing us towards the ultimate pleasure and the ultimate intimacy we were all created for. At the heart of mankind, at the heart of human life, the very mechanism by which mankind continues, by which we do are fruitful and we do fill the earth. God put this mechanism to be so intimate and pleasurable so that all people from all nations at all times in history would have a signpost telling them why they were made. You see, sex is pleasurable, but it's like a speeding train. It hits, it's a hit that soon fades, a high that rapidly dissipates. That's why people say the thrill is gone and after 20 years we'll have an affair in marriage because the buzz is gone. But the whole point of this is, is sex is a signpost to the pleasure and the intimacy we were made for. Psalm 16 verse 11 puts it like this, You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You see, the best sex in the world, the most intoxicating orgasm ever experienced, is only a foretaste and a pointer and a signpost to an even greater joy. A joy and a delight that will never fade because it comes from being in the very presence of God. And that was how life was meant to be. We were supposed to live a life in relationship with God, in his presence of infinite joy and infinite intimacy. It was a wonderful life. But we made a hash of it. We turned our backs on God. We were banished from his sight and from his presence. And now any pleasure we, we experience is temporary and fading. But it should remind us that we were created for a pleasure and an intimacy that would never fade. Do you know what I think God, coming back to our original question, do you know what I think God is saying to our society today? Don't think of him tutting in stern moral condemnation. He's not pleased with a lot of what he sees, for sure. But that's not because he's a killjoy. Not even because we've simply misused a good gift. It's because we've become so preoccupied with a gift that we've stopped looking at the giver. And by making that mistake, we're missing out on the pleasure and intimacy he really wants to give us. He's looking at us and wondering why we sell ourselves so short, why we're so easily satisfied while we settle for a temporary rush rather than eternal pleasure. C.S. Lewis, as usual, puts it much more eloquently than I. He says this, Our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, 
fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Sex is a signpost to God and he wants us to realise that again. You know, one of the most daring and wonderful metaphors in the whole Bible of what it is to have a relationship, what it is to have a relationship with God. You know, some, there's so many metaphors, aren't there? You know, God's our king and we're a servant. God's our shepherd and, and we're a, a sheep. And there's all these, God's a father and we're his children. But one of the most provocative is God is our bridegroom and we're the bride. God is a lover and he's supposed to satisfy us fully. So in Isaiah, the people of God have made a mess of it. And he says this, for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Lord will call you back as if you were his wife. God is saying to his people, I want you back. I want you to come to know me. I want that re- you want that relationship of intimacy and pleasure. You look for it in sex, but you should be looking for it in me. And I want you back. So it's not surprising that making love to someone on earth is maybe the closest we'll get to understanding what a relationship with God is like in heaven. Let me bring all this to a close and conclude. We've seen that this is a very relevant topic because we live in a sex-obsessed culture, but it's a culture that doesn't seem to be completely in control. We've seen that since God is the author of sex and pleasure, like any designer, he knows best, and therefore maybe we should listen to him more attentively. And we've seen that sex is a signpost pointing us to a greater reality for which we were made for, a relationship with himself. So, my gentle but provocative conclusion to you this evening, which I hope will stimulate heated discussion, is this. If you look to sex to give you the pleasure and intimacy that only God can give you, sex will always sell you short. In fact, like a drug addict, you'll need more of it, more of the time, in greater hits, in an attempt to find what you're looking for. But instead of pleasure and intimacy, ultimately, it will lead to dissatisfaction and restlessness. But if you realise that sex is a signpost for what is to come, then you can not only enjoy it and give thanks, but you'll also wait for the right context and the right level of commitment. And whether you're having sex or not having sex, you'll wait in eager anticipation for what is to come. So thanks for listening. I am sure that's food for thought. Remember, no questions too feisty, no questions too simple, but please respect one another's views and starting points. Uh, you can discuss any question you want please do the point is we'll now have a a half an hour to an hour to discuss whatever you like but here are maybe six questions pick the ones you like most that maybe will help you get your table discussion going why is sex such a big topic in our society today what do you think God's views on sex we've kind of discussed that one already do you think our culture has got all the answers when it comes to sex if so why if not why not If God is the creator of everything, including sex, do you think it is logical that we need to listen to what he says to get it right? How does knowing that sex and the pleasure and intimacy it promises point to the ultimate relationship we were created for change your view of sex? Does it change your view of sex? And finally, what questions, doubts, struggles do you have about the Christian view of sex? So listen, I'm so grateful for your attention. And I realise this is a hot topic, but a sensitive topic, so... I just uh, commend you to respect one another, but also talk openly and honestly. So thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your evening.